in terms of demographics, we're, I guess the right word is bearish on the world's population. Now we think the world's population is going to fall much, much sooner than a lot of people do. Hello and welcome to Signals by AlphaSense, where we hear thoughtful insights from business leaders, investors, and experts. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Signals by AlphaSense, and I'm your host, Nick Mazing. Today, we're joined by James Pomeroy, an economist at HSBC based in the UK. We're going to discuss several macro topics as we try to make sense of the next year or two, and even longer. We'll touch on inflation, rates, deglobalization, FX, and demographics. If you're an AlphaSense client, you can access James's notes in the platform. If you don't have access to those, you can reach out to your account manager. James, welcome, and can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes, thanks very much for having me, Nick. Um, so I'm James Pomer, as you said. I'm a global economist at HSBC. That involves looking at a bit of everything, you know, what is happening today in terms of central banks and growth and inflation and all of these near-term challenges that we all face. But I also spend a fair bit of my time looking at some of the longer-term themes really driving the fundamentals of the global economy. This would be it demographics, future of cities, digitalization, all of these interesting topics that I think are probably more important today than they've ever been. And now let's talk about the one of the big topics of last year going into this year, and that is inflation. And we had inflation in a number of geographies, though the drivers were somewhat different depending on where you are. So in Europe, Energy costs obviously were a major, major problem. In the US, you had stimulus, COVID hangover, housing, and so on in emerging markets where food is a larger percent of the basket. You had that was driving that. So how do you think about inflation going forward? Are we going to see some sort of a harmonization of how things are moving or what do you think? There's a lot going on with inflation at the moment. So there's almost sort of multiple questions in one here, but if we start with sort of the things that have we know have lifted inflation, you mentioned commodity prices, you mentioned energy in Europe, food in emerging markets. That's been pretty evident, right? There's a huge gap between headline inflation and core inflation, and we all feel it. This is the stuff that people feel day to day. How much it costs to heat your home, fill up your car, feed your family. These very, very high inflation rates in a lot of these commodities have really lifted inflation globally to varying degrees because, for example, in Europe, the energy shock has been much greater than elsewhere. As you say, in emerging markets where food is a bigger share of the basket, we've seen the upside shocks come through there as well. So it's sort of, there's been a big commodity story and that's fading away. Not necessarily these levels are going down. You know, the cost of your grocery shop or the cost of filling up your car is still going to be very, very high compared to where it was you know, two, three, four years ago. But it's coming down or it's not increasing. And that's what matters for that inflation rate. Essentially, you get the, the headline inflation rate will edge up ever so, well, the headline inflation rate will drop down ever so slightly, even though you've got those slightly higher levels. So what you end up getting is this story where inflation will naturally move lower because of these base effects, even if nothing else changes. Now, if we take away sort of, that sort of headline basis and we think about the core inflationary pressures, for me, one of the most interesting things that started happening is what's happening with goods prices. And this is a almost reversal of the enormous run up in goods prices we had during the height of the pandemic. If you go back to 2020, 2021, and even the first half of 2022, you had an enormous almost supply demand imbalance. You couldn't get stuff and everyone wanted to buy stuff. And we couldn't go out and do things. We all went and bought loads of furniture. We did up our homes. We bought electronics, all of those things, just as you couldn't get it. 
there was huge shipping capacity constraints and we couldn't get stuff across the world. You saw this in the shipping rates, right? The cost of shipping went up sevenfold. This was basically this grinding to a halt in global supply chains at exactly the same time the demand was so high. What we've started to see, in particular in the US, and one of the big questions for this year is does that A, continue, or B, spread to elsewhere in the world, is that supply-demand imbalance has just completely gone. Spending on goods has stopped increasing, and it looks like in the last few months of 2022 in the US, it started falling. That makes sense. It should be falling. It went up so high, it has to come back. But also, the supply dynamic has changed enormously. We can ship things across the world. Businesses have got available inventory. And so you've now got a situation where competition is back in the market. And what we're seeing in the US is these rapid falls in goods prices. At the back end of 2022, had the sharpest quarter drop in durable goods prices in history in the US. The question now is, does that continue and does it happen elsewhere? We think it probably does, at least in the US, and does spread elsewhere and you see lower goods prices. The challenges on the services front, now you've still got inflationary pressure for services. Some of that is higher wages, but also it's where we're choosing to spend our money. It's people who are going out and desperate to go to sporting events and shows and music gigs and all of these things. The demand is there. And businesses in those sectors are able to lift their prices because demand is still very, very strong in those sectors. That's the little bit that worries central banks. Some of those wage costs, some of that demand story on services. And so inflation will come down. You'll probably end up staying slightly higher than you might initially think. Because despite the dropping out of base effects in commodities, lower goods inflation, it may well be services that keeps things a little stickier. And related to inflation and COVID as well, deglobalization right? Mm. Obviously, a or reshoring or nearshoring or friendshoring, whatever you want to call it, right? A very interesting topic, obviously, a multi-year process. And the consensus view is that you've had, let's say, call it 30, 50 years of globalization, outsourcing supply chains, lowest bidder, wherever they are in the world, they get the business. And there is certainly a reconsideration of that. So in the Western Hemisphere, you have Mexico and Central America emerging as really the near shore locations. Could argue in Europe you have a similar dynamic? I mean, you've had it for a long time, but you know, if you look at Eastern Europe basically being the provider for Western Europe. So, what do you think about deglobalization? Yeah, so this is clearly a, a story that's probably gone on for much longer than the pandemic. It sort of started before the pandemic. It was something that as you sort of allude to, has been going on for years in terms of businesses thinking about where they can do their business cheapest or produce goods cheapest. And it doesn't necessarily mean just that labor cost, which is why everyone went and started producing things in China in the first place. There's also an element of being close geographically, which is why Mexico has become a large manufacturing economy. It's why these Eastern European economies like Poland have become large manufacturing economies. And that, that trend has been arguably accelerated by a few things in the last few years. Firstly, the tariffs that were put in place by President Trump and the uncertainty that created in global supply chains. Also, the pandemic itself, in terms of the sort of the different policies different economies had in different times, meant that a lot of firms appear to want to diversify their supply chains, but also then the higher costs, right? When the shipping costs went up seven times, suddenly businesses thought, well, hang on, wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to pay for that? And so all of this accelerated the, the sort of businesses thinking about, do we want to rejig our supply chains? Now, that looks like it may happen in future. At the moment, the evidence of it happening on a large scale is relatively thin. Now, we're seeing a fair amount of extra investment coming into Mexico, for example, clearly a winner. We're seeing a lot of stories about some 
very crucial industries in healthcare and electronics maybe being reshored into Europe and the US. And this is clearly part of that story. But there's still a lot of trade in Asia. Global trade is still picking up. And it's a, it's a story that hasn't quite sort of affected the world yet. Now, going forward, it might. We've got more and more businesses talking about these things, nearshoring, reshoring, deglobalization clearly becoming a much, much greater theme. The question in terms of whether it's inflationary or not is essentially what you're replacing with what. Now, the cost of producing in China or in parts of Asia has been going up very, very quickly in recent years, mostly because of strong wage growth. If that production leaves China, for example, and goes to Vietnam or it goes to India, a lower cost of production, it could actually mean cheaper costs. It could actually be deflationary. Equally, if that production shifts out of China and goes back to the US or Europe in a very, very heavily automated process, that could also be deflationary. And equally, if it goes back to Mexico or Poland or wherever it needs to be, that may give businesses a lot more security in their supply chain. It may make us less vulnerable to supply chain shocks which may actually not be deflationary, but may not necessarily give an inflationary impulse. So I think we've got to monitor the data and see how this trading system evolves. But it isn't so simple to me to think that the changing shape of global trade will be inflationary, because there's a lot of reasons why it could be actually deflationary too. Mm -hmm. And another topic related to inflation is rates. And we've seen a synchronized tightening by global central banks for the first time in a, in a long time. I think many market participants actually haven't been through anything like that. But the effectiveness of rates as a policy transmission mechanism obviously varies quite a bit. In the US, where you have, let's say, consumers with fixed rate mortgages for 30 years, nobody's refinancing when you look at the refinancing volumes, right? Because people locked in the rates. In other countries, obviously, those rates reset, and that is a kind of the, really the transmission mechanism. What are we monitoring in terms of rates this year? Yeah, I think house housing markets are a great example of this. And where we're seeing it most clearly isn't necessarily in house prices. Because as you say in the US, if you're on a 30-year mortgage, you're not really affected. But one thing you really, really don't want to do is move house. Because suddenly, if you move house, your cost every month goes through the roof. So what we're actually seeing in a lot of places is that it's housing transaction volumes that are down, not necessarily prices, because demand is collapsing, but so is supply. Uh, and so essentially what you're seeing is these hits to the economy coming through fewer people moving home. That's going to mean fewer durable goods purchases and so on. You're going to see the hit through those channels. The question in those economies where you are seeing a more direct hit, and Sweden is a great example of this, but most mortgages are on a variable rate. So the fee through is almost instantaneous. House prices have dropped about 15% already, and they could well go lower. The big question there is, how does that spill over into the rest of the economy? Now, do you start to really see housing construction go down considerably? Do you start to see household confidence really drop off a cliff and households really be much more cautious about their other forms of spending? Now, in Sweden's case, that hasn't been the case yet but it could well prove to be in 2023. And it's a great example because it's a highly leveraged economy with a housing market that's fallen more than anywhere else in the world with this very efficient transmission mechanism of monetary policy. And actually could be quite a good ready reckoner where we could see some of these impacts of higher rates, which are going to come with a lag through the rest of the global economy. We're probably going to see the impact first in Sweden. And the data do look like they're turning. We're forecasting a pretty sharp recession in Sweden in 2023. But is going to be a good barometer, I think, of what's going to happen elsewhere. But clearly, higher rates are squeezing households, and that's not a good thing for growth in the course of 2023. And related to rates, let's talk about FX. So mm. we've seen a major bull market in the US dollar. 
right? It was nice to take a summer, you know, a summer <laughs> trip to Europe here from the US where it, when, yeah, you know, yeah. when the euro was at, was at parity. Obviously, for multinationals reporting in dollars, right? We were in the journal with one piece where they looked at how high up in the press releases company use constant currency, yeah. <laughs> you know, because obviously yeah, exactly. they, they, they like the like for like reporting. So how do you think about the US dollar? Is, is the bull market over? So we think it is, but that's not necessarily because we really hate the US dollar or really love anything else, quite frankly. It's almost that expectations went so far in one direction, they could only go back. Now, if you go back to September, October sort of time, when this sort of tide was turning in that US dollar bull run, we were in a situation where everyone was very, very worried about emerging markets. Everyone was terrified about Europe because of where gas prices were and the uncertainty and the possibility of essentially having to turn off the power in parts of Europe during the winter. And essentially, it's a combination of that worst case scenario being averted in most parts of the world, particularly here in Europe. So things look slightly better and maybe interest rates can go higher in this part of the world. And we're seeing the Bank of England, the ECB lift rates a little more quickly since then, and probably will, in the ECB's case in particular, do a little bit more, which markets were skeptical about. And now there's a little bit more solidity in that European growth story it's not necessarily great. You know, we're still forecasting mild recessions in Europe, but it's certainly not that worst case scenario that everyone was thinking was certainly plausible three months ago, four months ago. And then at the same time, what's happened in the US is the Fed has not necessarily got super dovish, but they've stepped back a little bit of the hawkish rhetoric. And a lot of that comes down to what we we're talking about earlier with inflation. Now, in the US, you've seen this big deflationary pull from goods prices, which allows you a little bit of comfort that underlying inflation is coming down quite quickly. In the back end of uh, last year, you had the core CPI X shelter. There's a lot of reasons why we have to ignore shelter in the US CPI data because of the huge lags it has. That was negative three months in a row. It's only ever happened once in history during the peak of the pandemic. So this is a very, very different US inflation environment to where we were expecting and where markets were expecting three months, four months ago. And those two dynamics, that better growth in the rest of the world, that much lower US inflation than anyone was forecasting back then, has changed the dynamics. And essentially, the world was priced for US great, everyone else terrible. And now it looks more like everyone else okay, US sort of okay. And that balancing act is leading us to get back to some sort of different equilibrium with currencies. Mm -hmm. I feel so strongly about the US CPI shelter methodology that I actually got published in the Financial Times <laughs> <laughs> discussing the because I mean, Rental inflation in the U.S. peaked at 18% year over year. Yeah. If had they been using real-time data, the U.S. CPI would have been in the teens and that would have started tightening yeah. much, much, yeah. much faster. I, so, and it also means you have these weird lags of when it's coming down, right? So rental prices it, have stopped rising, but we're still seeing these 0.7s, 0.8s month on month in CPI. is meaningless. It's telling us about what happened two years ago. And the Fed is rightly now acknowledging that we need to strip out that shelter when looking at what is really happening in those month on month inflation prints. But it's going to play havoc with markets because shelter in core CPI is more than 40% weighting. It's going to keep going up in year-on-year -year terms for the next you know, three, six months, almost regardless of what is happening on the ground. And it's a huge problem in terms of explaining these numbers to markets, to investors, and to really send a clear message. And that does muddy the challenge for the Fed. But nonetheless, they seem to be accepting we need to look through those shelter numbers. Mm -hmm. And the last question that I have is about demographics. Now, you write about demographics quite a bit. I like demographics because it's the future that has already happened, quote unquote. I'm forgetting whose quote it is, but it is the future that has already happened. You can like count on that. So we recently had news that 
the population in China declined. And now people have been expecting that. Maybe it came a little bit sooner. And there is also the issues of things like excess deaths in developed markets, long COVID affecting the labor force participation. What do you think investors should keep an eye on there? I think there's a lot of things to watch. In terms of demographics, we're, I guess the right word is bearish on the world's population. Now we think the world's population is going to fall much, much sooner than a lot of people do. And I think this is essentially because birth rates are coming in much lower than one people expected a couple of years ago. But also we're seeing a lot of social trends that are meaning that birth rates we think are going to be permanently lower. And we've got to lower our expectations of where they could get to. So the pandemic has basically taught us that a whole young generation of people today across the developed world in particular, they don't want to have kids as much as their parents did. And that's partly because of social changes. There are more people in the workforce, particularly women working in the much, much more. We've got people caring about environmental concerns. We've got huge economic concerns. Now, if you're in your 20s today, the ability to buy one of these very expensive homes where you could raise a family is almost impossible for a large number of young people. So the idea of raising a family, in particular a large family, is almost not even on the radar for a lot of people in their 20s. And that's pulling down birth rates quite sharply. And we've also got to revise where that can get to, because in Korea, we've now got a birth rate that's below 0.9. That would not have been seen as plausible five years ago. It's happened. And this is not a city state. This is a real economy of 50 million people with a birth rate that's so low that as it stands, the Korean population will drop by 60% in the course of a generation. And what we're saying is, don't rule out that possibility in other places. Now, I say this to people, I say, look at the UK, our birth rate's about 1.5, 1.4 children per woman. There's no reason why that couldn't be 0.9 in a decade's time. And if it is, you're talking about our population halving by the end of the century. And the same could be true in other developed markets because those economic and social changes that are happening. So we think big picture, look at that very, very low birth rate, it's going to have a huge impact 20 years down the line. That's probably beyond the investment horizon of many investors. But the whole, a world of many, many fewer children and what it means for you know, debt dynamics and fiscal policy and all of those things is going to be fascinating. In terms of that near-term turn, we're going to have fewer workers. We're going into a world where across the developed world and in China, we're going to have smaller working age populations. And many people will say, a bit like with globalization, Therefore, that must be inflationary because workers will have more bargaining power. We've got an older population who are wealthier, asset owning, who can keep spending, but we've got fewer workers to provide the goods and services that the population wants to consume. That's great analysis. The problem is, I think it completely ignores robotics and automation. Now, we're going through one of the fastest periods of automation the world has ever seen. This is not just automation in terms of manufacturing. This is service robots. It's things that help streamlined, you're checking into a hotel or reception in an office. We're saying AI is going to play an enormous role in knowledge work. These technological developments balance that dynamic out a little bit as well. So we think that the, the changing demographics isn't likely to be as inflationary as some people expect. I don't necessarily worry about us having too few workers because I think a certain number of jobs will naturally disappear out of the economy anyway because of these productivity enhancing benefits we get from technology. So what you end up getting is a slightly older different workforce that may be one that means slower growth going forwards. But also note that changing cohort effect that comes through from demographics. So what you're likely to get is a young generation today who care much more about environmental issues, sustainability. You've got a young generation who's much more digitally connected. 
they're going to be the core consumer globally over the course of this decade. They're going to drag their taste with them. So there's lots of things going on with demographics, fewer children, these cohort effects dragging things through. I don't think it's necessarily inflationary. I think automation is a much, much bigger factor, but it probably means over the longer term, weaker growth potential in the developed world. That cocktail of things isn't great if you've got a huge amount of government debt. James, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. This was James Pomeroy, Global Economist at HSBC. We discussed inflation, rates, deglobalization, demographics. My name is Nick Mazing. This is Signals by AlphaSense. You can subscribe to us on the major platforms. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. This was another episode of Signals by AlphaSense. Keep in mind that all views presented here are the views of the guests and hosts and do not represent the views of their employers or of AlphaSense. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investing, tax, legal, or medical advice. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review and subscribe for more.